You couldn't say we'd found each other. It meant as much as all the water. To be living like matchsticks, our heads unlit and itching. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Interpreter's House podcast. My name is Andrew Wells. Today I was joined by David Spittle. We discussed his first poetry collection, All Particles and Waves, as well as his forthcoming collection, Rubbles, which is due out with broken sleep books. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm going to start with a more personal writing question, I guess, Um, because being friends, I've like noticed the tendency that you like to send your recent stuff, not the stuff that people can buy. (laughs) So I wanted to ask how you feel about your work once it's out in the world. Like, how does that change your relationship to it, if at all? Like, is it just a case of time has passed and now you feel differently? Or is it something about it being out in the world? Um, that's really interesting. I think that um, because I, I don't think of having much work out in the world, I don't really feel like I've got a great deal of experience with that. And, and I'm still quite close into the publication in some respects. Like I guess Box was back in 2018. Um, I think that uh, there's part of me that maybe maybe it's based in a kind of uh, sublimated panic or, or kind of um, nervousness that doesn't really want to dwell and wants to keep kind of chugging along. Um, and so I think I always feel good to have subjects, uh, not subjects, projects continuing and continuing. And when something has come out, there is a kind of uh, a, a defensive dismissal I have in my mind where I don't really want to go back to it which I think is often uh, not helpful because it doesn't give me that sort of space for reflecting on it too much. But recently I have gone back to all particles a little bit. And like, I guess, it, I guess on looking back, it becomes clear how transparently um, diaristic it is. And, and at the time you, you, you were, or I am incredibly naive to how transparent some of that stuff is. And I think what I do get rather than perhaps a sense of, Um, consciously engaging with my older work once it's published is something shifts in your um, interests so that you feel that you're moving on to another phase and it allows you to think in terms of like um, what what new directions can I take and, and what would I like to build on and what would I like to drop and I think certainly there are certain poems that I read in all particles that I used to really enjoy reading at, at at readings in a kind of performance sort of context and now I feel really um mixed about them yeah so that's kind of interesting I suppose yeah I should say when we're talking about all particles we're referencing all particles and waves which is David's latest collection from Black Herald Press who are based in Paris right yeah 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 with um yeah yeah um so this is a kind of broad question. I'm like literally just going in order of the things I wrote because otherwise it's like too overwhelming. <laughs> um, overwhelming is good too. We can overwhelming is good. I can like maybe maybe if I'm brave enough at some point I'll like go away from the order. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask how would you characterize the relationship between thought and writing in your work? It's yeah. Uh, I guess for all writers, it's a, a huge thing. I think for me, it was like hugely 
Do you think it is a huge thing for all writers? Because there are some writers I look at and I really don't think that's the case. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. I guess um, there, it's a huge thing for all the writers, I suppose, that I like and that I read, maybe. Um, uh, I guess then there's also the distinction between thought, uh, what what kind of thinking, you know, is this a kind of intellectual cognition or is this something that is more intuitive and it, uh, and then what is the experiential movement between those sort of different phases of thought and then you get into a broader sense of perception and and then you know all that kind of uh, interesting stuff around how perception interacts with memory and the unconscious um so i think it was definitely really influenced by reading ashbury and for me Ashbury was fascinated by how we articulate our experiences and how, um, in turn, those experiences of articulation become their own kind. Of, it becomes a kind of strange loop, which I have articulated ironically, absolutely awfully. <laughs> uh, yeah, like oh, I think you articulated pretty well in plot, which I think is probably like the collection from you, where I think that where I think you sort of address memory and perception the most or the most sort of consistently. Like that feels like it's sort of very purposefully setting out to unpack those things. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that was something that was easy to fall in love with when looking at Joseph Cornell's boxes, when sort of looking at Guy Madden's films, when reading John Ashbery. Um, And it is, the articulation of experience, the experience of articulation, that's the more sort of um, encapsulated small thing that I was trying to get at. And kind of at the centre of that is this idea for me of play and how the ludic kind of movement of um, these types of thinking, these types of saying, and how they kind of begin to blur into one another. And for me, that's what then leads to an experience of surrealism. Like I think of the way that Ashbury um, communicates, I think, indirectly the surrealist uh, sensation is is through language and is through perception and the way that they kind of begin to inform each other. Um, yeah, so I guess like, but 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 in, for my own work, I think thinking, um, especially all particles um, and and all the poetry that was going up for that, and I think box actually feels much more. I guess appropriately enclosed or um, calm in a way, kind of controlled to it, which I think actually in all particles and waves, I was getting to a more kind of neurotic, expansive quality in thinking. And I think that um, there was a large part of me that wanted to cathartically convey nervous thought and um, kind of intrusive thought as well in terms of a kind of, depressive and obsessive state and then by the end of that and also reading that stuff I I found that it became really close to a nervous um display of of like trying to be consciously acrobatic with language in a way that then and so it so it almost escalated that nervousness in a way which I, I began to feel was uh, kind of not healthy and not also that interesting as writing that I was almost trying to out outdo parts of my own sort of equivocation which I don't think made for particularly yeah I mean there's only so far you can go with that I think um that's how I started to feel it wasn't really what I wanted how I wanted to write too much I mean overthinking is a quintessential part of the human experience though so Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, but I, I, I think um, I think about thinking. I think I thought I say I was going to say that. Um, yeah, I was interested in what my poetry might be like if I didn't have that itch in it. To to and it is an itch. It's a kind of syncopated uh, looking back over the shoulder and reflexively ricocheting back and forth about um your thought metacognition and the reflection and the kind of going forward and the coming back and this kind of jittering a lot of your poems are quite long so i wondered if it's kind of like a bug bite where once you start itching it just gets worse and worse and worse yeah 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 yeah. and actually there are times when i'm writing when um i know i've really far outstayed my welcome on the page and i've very much like run out of the inspiration that began it perhaps but there is this kind of like almost self-sabotaging, digging and digging and digging and going forward. Um, and I almost need an outside distraction to get me out of that state because it is quite a, um, it is like rumination. It's like overthought in language um, and that kind of a uh, sort of negative play, I think. And and that's that's interesting because I think this is where you get the shadow of a kind of creative thinking is a slightly darker obsessing and and that, that can become trapped and can become a little bit like a fly in a jar sort of syndrome where it's kind of knocking furiously against the walls. <laughs> so I had a couple of like questions about surrealism, which gave me pause. Um, and I know you said it before the Zoom chat, don't call me a surrealist. So I actually feel better <laughs> about asking these questions as a result of that. Um, yeah. Just because, you know, your work if not surrealist, only like uses surrealism to sort of preface and structure a lot of the more vulnerable moments in at least all particles and waves, I think. Yeah. Um, and so my question, which is asked under the sort of proviso that I'm not really, you know, I'm not an expert on surrealism. I haven't read a whole lot about it, but does it insulate itself from emotional, physical and political consequence? Hmm. That's really like, does it sort of reach such a point of abstraction sometimes where where those things are no longer concerns? Um, I think probably the uh, self-declared surrealists and especially like, you know, going back to Parisian surrealism with, with, with Breton Bataille and his, the, the coterie and the uh, frictions and factions there, that they would say quite the opposite, that actually surrealism is very much about living and life and embodying a kind of, it's almost like a kind of edge experience, the limitations and the kind of thresholds of um, physicality and sexuality and uh, mental experiences. So, um, but I, I think that a lot of that writing quite quickly becomes mired in a sort of, um, habitual Freudian avalanche of sort of fairly recycled images. And so they it ends up kind of not quite achieving perhaps what the impulse behind it is. Um, and so a lot of surrealist poetry, I think, at least surrealist poetry that declares itself to be surrealist poetry, kind of falls short of its aims because it, it whether through automatic writing or an over-reliance on a kind of um kind of uh what now feels i guess like quite hackneyed drama in the imagery around certain 
supposedly transgressive or archetypal um, horrors or, or something. Um, I have to say, talking about this, I feel incredibly fluffy on the details because I really stopped um, engaging with surrealism in such a kind of deep way at the end at the end of the PhD. Like it obviously has a, a lasting uh, kind of strange unfurling cloud of influence uh it in me but i think you know that was in 2016 when i when i finished and i, I feel like a real um distance from from understanding it with the same clarity for me my my understanding of the way that i came to it was very much kind of navigated through um Blancho's essay tomorrow at stake or tomorrow is at stake i think it was called um and I was really interested in the idea of surrealism rather than being kind of perhaps uh, an aesthetic or a politics or um, a, uh, I guess, artistic endeavor uh, that, that was about life. I, I, I preferred the idea of it as an experience of life and as a way of articulating the dreamlike and strange-like quality of life when we give it our full attention. And so for me, it became really close to phenomenology and the way in which we experience our own experience and if we we pay intense close philosophical and embodied attention to the forms of attention that allow our perception and allow our um everyday kind of mundane activities suddenly that mundanity that banality becomes dreamlike and for me ashbury was someone who was able able to understand this reproduce and embody it without the same kind of uh extremity that say like some of the surrealists aim for and instead to me preserved instead this sort of genial amiable cloudiness this kind of foggy um affectionate quality and i found that a lot more enticing and a lot more livable as well and relatable because there's only so long that you can spend kind of in in the kind of uh grips of operatic drama and uh, Max Ernst-esque kind of uh, confabulations of, of crazy images. And I thought what Ashbury really understood was that it's the, it's the um, dailiness of this and that it's a particular and enchanted attention to that dailiness that brings the dream into, rea into reality or perceives the reality as a dream. And, and that was what really excited me because I was, I was fascinated with how we perceive and how we experience. Would you say there's a connection there with Mark Fisher's book on the weird and the eerie? I think it was one of his last books. Oh, oh right, yeah. Um, I haven't actually read that one. Um, I think I, there really might be. Pardon? I said we can cut this bit then. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it in, keep it in. There's got, there's got to be a game where we're going to try for this realism of my faltering and our confusion. So that's, that's all good. I'll just, I'll just I'm, I'm really... like a fake robotic voice over the top. Like, yes, I have read that. <laughs> <laughs> I agree entirely on your reference. <laughs> um, I, I think, like, just, just on Mark Fisher quickly, I, I found, you know, his passing and reading the book on hauntology and um capitalist realism and and a lot of his k-punk stuff i just found it re after after you know he died I, it was really upsetting because it was so visceral in his writing the presence of depression and the, the way in which he he understood capitalism and depression and mental kind of illness 
in relation to that sort of uh, those those values and those strictures and that exploitation that as someone who yeah suffers from depression it was it was really really upsetting to 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 see to see that happen um but he's in, also very incredibly inspiring and i guess another one of those writers who um unfairly at times kind of disappears into the kind of uh waves of copycat sort of esque um rhetoric that surrounds his work as well but yeah i i don't know enough about him to kind of extemporize much more than that <laughs> i was hoping you would read dear estranged for us <laughs> Beautifully put. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it would, <laughs> I'd love to. Um, this is the first poem in All Particles and Waves. Dear Estranged, there was pollen, a misdirected joke about your hat. My floundering had become visible. So many books to read, too many. And so it's a choice of who and when to commit that buckles knees, plums, 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 pecams, harsh, pop, pop, pop. Can I start again? Can I give that another crack? Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right, we'll do that once more with audacity. <laughs> once more with audacity, yeah. This is going to be over, like, this could be fraught with absolute audio landmines of in-jokes that are just going to derail it massively. <laughs> but, but just keep telling me what to record, how much to record. I've got no qualms. It's all grand. Um, so, yeah, Dear Estranged, there was pollen, a misdirected joke about your hat. My floundering had become visible. So many books to read, too many. And so it's a choice of who and when to commit that buckles knees, palms clammy with indecision. But you're bearing up. I've been here all my life. And I have little sense of having learned how best to use what it is I've learned. So much dressing up. And then you take it off, convince the others are all so effortlessly, confidently naked. Yet I never thought to tell you how I only felt when pushed, talked up onto no brink. There was sunlight and the ants were sure of where to go. You couldn't say we'd found each other. It meant as much as all the water. To be living like matchsticks, our heads unlit and itching. Thank you, David. That is one of my favourite poems. I know it's right at the start, but it's still one of my favourites. Thank you. Thanks. Um, oh, I had a dumb question. Oh, please. Who is, who is Latremont? Latremont? Oh, Latremont. Yeah, um, he was in a sort of proto-surrealist writer before the surrealists. Um, it's the pen name of Isidore Ducasse, I think. I'm probably saying that awfully wrong. And he wrote an incredible, incredible book, which could be conceived as a prose poem, really. It's like this feverishly intoxicated rant of this shape-shifting, vampiric, mutable, beast, evil thing. Uh, it's called The Songs of Maldoror. And he declares right at the beginning, I'm an evil genius. No, what does he say? Something like, I'm a genius, but I shall use my genius for evil. And I was like, wonderful. Okay, this sounds good. Um, uh, you know, and we follow his depraved and transgressive antics across the strange dream of the prose. And it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Still really shocking now and still also quite bizarrely funny in parts and, and just really strange. I love it. It's amazing. Really, really good. Oh, check there's, it out. there's a bit where he, yeah, yeah. There, there's a bit where he is standing on a cliff top, and um, 
is watching uh, sailors drown in a shipwreck and just really enjoying the scene, getting a voyeuristic kick out of it. And then he dives into the raging waters, the seething waters of the shipwreck, and uh, in doing so, uh, sees a shark and decides, you know what? I'm going to wrestle with and then make love to that shark. And so there's this really strange shark, uh, yeah, marine shark fucking scene. And uh, it's very bizarre. And I, I mention it also because one of my favorite poets, Lisa Samuels, wrote a book that imagines what the spawn of that shark was. Um, and ah. yeah, her book, Tender Girl. Um, Tender Girl, okay. I, Just because I know the most. Happen, I think. Is it in Rubbles as an epigraph, or is that in All Particles? Um, I think there's one in All Particles. Um, yeah, there's definitely in All Particles. In the second part, I think, um, I, I use the quote, and this isn't from Tender Girls, but it's what from, um, I forget which collection right off the top of my head. It might be Wild Dialectics, I don't know. It says, I am inside sitting and outside on my way in toward myself, the waiting. You wouldn't think there was anything in it. Yours is the creative imagination, constructing the way to see this further place and the wakeful aspect fumes. Um, yeah, I think I think Lisa Samuels' work is is incredible. I love it. Is that the same book? Is that Tender Girl? I don't think that is Tender Girl. I, I think that's one of her other collections. Um, okay. But the whole of Tender Girl is incredible. And just as a premise, like what an incredible premise for a book. Yeah. Um. So part of what I was saying earlier was how you sort of use surrealism to structure the collection all particles. Um, and I feel like it kind of negates the intimacy that you set up in Dear Strange. Like Dear Strange kind of feels like almost like a breaking point. Um, at the very start, there's a breaking point. And then you're sort of like cycling back through all this like... Um, lack of intimacy and the sort of absence of it kind of like strengthens its like initial sense of importance. That's, that's such a beautiful reading of it. Like, and because I think that's incredibly spot on in that I think Dear Estranged for me does feel like a very uh, vulnerable poem. Um, and it, it was one of those, po when I, when those poems for me tend to sort of, come out it is without me necessarily knowing so or wanting to know so um, and I, I feel really I always feel quite averse to kind of lyric immediacy and um, poetry for emotion in a um, yeah I struggle with that, letting that happen in poetry I, I, partly because I get very excited by the more I guess sometimes quite extravagant notion of poetry is mad research and a kind of exploratory tangle of visionary crazy. Not saying that I achieved those heights, but that's what I love. But Dear Strange and Fog to Almost See You, I think, were the two poems that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that I have a, I have a, I have Fog to Almost See You next on my list to ask because it comes quite early on in. Um, in part two, after so after all this negation has happened, then you have like mm. fog to almost see you, and it's um, kind of like bringing us back to the the present moment, if you like. Like you sort of like almost chart the process that got us to do estranged, 
And then you sort of mm. return us to that present moment in the second part of the collection. I think Fog to Almost See You is a really beautiful um, sort oh, thank of you. articulation of that. Um, but I was going to ask you about intimacy and how you sort of portray it in the collection in general. Um, because it's such this prized thing, intimacy itself seems to turn into something where we're so busy protecting it and protecting the notion of it that we stop actually letting ourselves like be vulnerable to it mm. and end up like, you know, completely closing ourselves off to it. And I think that's um, a really tricky thing to articulate in poetry, like the emotion of being closed off emotionally. Like, so you set yourself a yeah. real challenge there and I really admire what you're doing. Thank you. I think it's just incredibly astute that you were able to kind of see that because I think I only uh, hemi, uh, I only sort of semi-apprehend that myself in it. And I think that in some ways you can see the kind of idea of the more surreal or intricate confabulations of the other work as strange castles to protect from or labyrinth, labyrinths to hide within uh, that, that intimacy. Um, and... I think part of it's because I have genuinely, I have far more conscious interest in exploring poetry that I feel is transportative rather than reflective, perhaps, so that I'm, I am interested deeply in poetry that creates a world, that feels like it's entering into a world, as opposed to necessarily um, reflecting back to me the familiarity of a kind of um, conscious emotion, perhaps. But I think I think when emotion or emotionality and, and the vulnerability around that comes through, for me, it's often without me meaning for it to. And the, the poems usually begin quite cryptically. And then I'll come back to them and be like, oh, I see. I was quite obviously talking about this um but you know that's not necessarily in the poem but it's like so fog to almost see you i wrote uh in in one sitting at a at a very kind of um worried and quite like um upsetting time in a in a, in a, a long-term relationship that was sort of falling apart and i didn't really realize it at the time and then on going back to it it's something that i really cherishing poetry is that strange like um unconscious prophetic ability it has to just you know you fool yourself when you write it that you're you're doing something abstract or bizarre or kind of uh oh yeah it's you know i'm, I'm kind of like doing some kind of syntactic shimmy via steinian in the, and you go back and you're like no, no no i'm just just basically scared <laughs> about something or upset and um yeah for me that that poem i came back to it and it was like it was a little map to to what was about to happen. Um, yeah, so like not knowing, you know, that's a huge thing in poetry, not knowing what, what is happening, allowing for intuition and for strangeness and give, giving it time to settle, perhaps. Mm. All right. I'm, um, I'm out of notes for all particles and ways. <laughs> so that was fine by me. I'm going to ask you about your newer work which is not published yet right so this is this was just for me yeah um oh yeah <laughs> and so this is rubbles which is a fantastic title and i have in um big letters on the front um our deaths will be commodified which i wrote late last night 
<laughs> I like it. My and actual notes yeah. are just like a tangled mess. And we are living it? them. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is wanted... It is a tangled mess. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I love a tangled mess. Like, I think, personally, yeah. I think poetry that pretends that it's not a tangled mess. And like, I think this is maybe like part of your sort of reticence about lyric poetry and the sort of like the vulnerable eye is so a lot of the time it's not actually being that vulnerable like it's like i am in love okay mm. like chill like but i mean it's also <laughs> it's never always that simple is it yeah like, that's the thing like these sort of s- simple emotions on the page and it's like oh that's so moving like you know usually there's like something very messy behind it that is not yeah. being talked about because it's too difficult which is really i think like poetry is for the things that are too difficult i, I agree i think um i think it, it just came to me the, the kind of common usage of like owning uh, emotion and ownership and the idea of kind of strongly possessing certitude as to what is going on and and to me that seems like a real betrayal of how i have always kind of encountered my own emotions and experience and whether whether you say that's due to a lack of emotional literacy or just a kind of uh, a closer fidelity to to the strangeness of it all or the the kind of the the lack of emphatic drama that you expect at certain moments and that doesn't arrive or that that kind of gets mistranslated and and finds its outlet elsewhere um i i think that yeah it's um it comes in from the corners and confuses and and that that's um yeah the, the kind of ineffable side of those things where you just feel like it's a bit of a um there's, there's no owning it. It's being arguably owned by it, confused by it. And it, it's, it's then gets you into this idea of um, there being no coherent or, or um, predictably stable self or idea of the self or the idea of the emotions that are yours or that make you you, because you can surprise your, your quote self. You know, there, there can be feelings that, that, that frighten you. There can be emotions that you don't really um, or, or equally that are just so um, anonymously uh, not universal because I, I don't want to use that word but that, that are primal I suppose or elemental in their kind of relatability but for that reason perhaps aren't as interesting and, and I don't want to write about that maybe um, like why should my experience of a certain kind of emotion that has been better written about and better more more in, emphatically felt by centuries of other writer you know other writers why, why should I feel the need to to kind of put my spin on it when I could also be writing about kind of I don't know um strange worms from the Cambrian period and how they relate to um occult understandings of my emotions <laughs> yeah I wanted to ask you about Glitter Gravel Grave specifically page five which I'm assuming this is all one poem by the way yeah, yeah. So this would be the second part. Um, and you say, no balm, no truth, no reason, no calm before, no storm. I'm going to start that again. <laughs> no calm before, no storm. That <laughs> was a barnstorming reading of the storm storm. <laughs> no balm, no truth, no reason, no calm before, no storm, and no forecast. Is that like a little snippet of your poetics? Is that like, welcome to my book? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I think I think so. Yeah. What do you think the problems are with poetry? Sort of having forecast, having bomb, having consolation. Asaberg um, has a great little essay, um, "Tsunami from Solaris," I think it's called, with action books where where she's like, you know, writing all these like really horrific poems about horrific things that have happened. And people are telling her like, why are you doing this? This is horrible. And she's actually like, um, well, isn't it like far more sort of problematic to be writing these weepy, teary-eyed poems of consolation for all the sort of people that are safe to feel good about themselves? Mm, mm. So I wondered if you could talk yeah. a little bit about about why you think no balm is a good thing. I think often because with a sense of um, soothing assurance or, or kind of familiar messaging around emotional certainty comes a large amount of condescension. You know, this kind of, it's it presumes a certain authority on the subject. Um, and that, is a real balancing act between um, what could have wisdom or, or profundity and what could be inane, vapid, and glib. And that's a kind of tightrope that I don't really want to contend with, I suppose. I'm not interested in it. Um, and, and this is why I think there's so much... I mean, Ashbury put it brilliantly where he said, I love ambiguity because... With ambiguity, there's the sense that it could be resolved, whereas with writing that is already resolved, there's, you know, the fact that it will unravel. <laughs> you know? um, whereas, you know, if you, if you present that cloud of unknowing, you know, that, that it, it becomes something that the reader can inhabit and move in much more rewardingly with the possibility of finding their own kind of pathways into it rather than giving a path and being like or, or you know presenting some sort of manicured garden of experience as opposed to the strange rotting foliage <laughs> um I, I don't know yeah I, i'm getting sidetracked there by words but um carry on well i was gonna say like writing is and reading is one of those modes where we can do that where we can have that process of unraveling where we like inhabit things take yeah. it by ourselves um so even though there's no sort of moral obligation to have writing that, you know, performs that function, like, I mean, why not? Because we can. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think also it's the thing of, um, I don't know, like, I, I feel increasingly uh, tentative about getting impassioned about a certain perspective on my poetry or poetry and, and the poetics of the eye and emotionality because it's such a kind of it's such a broad field that it's more just like it's I suppose it's more appealing to me to kind of um, concentrate on what I enjoy as opposed to unpicking what or, or, or railing against what I feel doesn't satisfy me um and i think it's such a temptation um always in in uh art to to kind of get drawn into the critique of where you feel like contemporary poetry or art or film or something is is going in a trajectory that you find abhorrent or upsetting or repulsive it's really tempting and then in doing that you become kind of 
parasitic and contingent upon that which you despise rather than kind of staying uh, rooted in enriching your understanding of what perhaps you uh, enjoy and what you want. And I think I felt like um, there was so much kind of fraught and theoretical and ethical conversations around the lyric eye in relation uh, to to poetry um, that were very alive in uh, academic circles when I was doing the PhD and, and that I think related to this turn with the legacy of language poetry suddenly seeming uh, no longer viable as a kind of uh, political or ethical option, but uh, which is not to say I don't love it. I love a lot of language poetry and have a deep respect for a lot of those poets. But I think also then the question of who who gets to dismantle the eye, what what privilege is involved in being able to have that kind of um, fragmentation, which can be taken back to modernism and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and I think more and more I'm just getting excited about trying to stick in my lane uh, whatever strange lane that is rather than get kind of like chasing the cars um and i think that this is part of maintaining sanity as well right um i think that with contending with a poetry world that can exist online for a lot of us when we're all remote it's so um saturated by by um what what are not by voices, because they're not voices, but by these kind of billboarding of ideas um, in, in certain reductivist and antagonistic ways that it's incredibly tempting always to, to, to kind of get um, caught up in that. And, and there are Im- important and interesting conversations going on there, but you can't keep up with all of them and nor should you. I think there's a sense that we, we're obliged to have kind of uh, sort of reflexed opinions about certain things. And the question, the I and the kind of immediacy of conveying coherent selfhood in lyric poetry and in poetry is is such a huge, expansive, exciting, difficult question. And I think think one of the things I really enjoyed recently was getting into um, reading the Tao Tai Chi and the book of Shang Tzu. And I think that for me, there's a really appealing, um, restless acceptance of change, of mutability, of paradox in that work, which to me is exactly what we were talking about before, about presenting the, the cloudiness that actually, to me, feels far more of a balm that isn't giving you a way, uh, is talking about a way in, in Taoism, I guess, but, but is not giving you a stable answer at all. It's giving you more and more questions and, and in a way, by doing so, is embodying experience and our experience of life in ways that, to me, feel more true, uh, feel, feel more exciting. It's validating in a different way, right? It's validating not understanding everything, which I think is something that yeah. lots of people feel especially these days yeah well oh man and i I think one of the the very hugely important things for me when i was growing up was not knowing things (laughs) i used to go um as as a i know this is gonna sound so depressingly unexciting but one of the treats that i would have as a young dave uh, and i'm talking like 10 or 
11, I think, we would go once a week to the local library and uh, it, it, the, the trip would be crowned with a um, fish and chips afterwards. So it was a very hallowed event, a consecrated moment. And I would take out these books, like it's ridiculous, these books uh, on microbiology that were huge, like scientific volumes. I didn't understand any of it and I kept like little notebooks as a kid like some of these are hilarious I made like um evolutionary predictions like and one of them is just a drawing (laughs) well what one of them was just a drawing of a slug with hair and I was like slugs will probably get hairy soon I reckon that'll happen (laughs) but no I didn't read that in one of your collections oh really yeah that's probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah I haven't got a clue but like um I think that that idea of um, the infinite unknowing of, of it all is so exciting. And rather than finding it kind of an obstruction or a kind of uh, a difficulty that was confrontational, it was something that I was like, there's this world that I don't understand. And that's exciting. Um, I love that. It's funny, and this is like kind of tangential, but talking about the, you know, the infinite unknowing being something fun and exciting and um not an obstruction as well as like, you know, these big science textbooks when you're a kid, like it does just make me think of the um, pretty prevalent anti-scientific approach, both in the UK and the U S at the moment. Like there are a lot of um, people very unwilling to consider evidence and um, would rather sort of claim to know everything rather than like, accept that, anyone can change their opinion based on the evidence presented to them. Right. Mm, mm. Yeah. I think we had, I think we had this with both, like we have this now with vaccines, but we also had it with, with Brexit, right. You know, you would say to someone, why are you, why are you voting for Brexit? And they would say, because of all the illegal immigration, you'd be like, well, the EU is legal immigration, so it's not going to help. And they'd be like, yeah, but I still want it. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think as well, like that was something that deluge of information and the kind of, the, 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 I mean, like, I'm sorry if I've taken a tangent that doesn't quite make sense because you, no. you broke up a little bit at my end. But um, I, I think that a sense of, it is the unknown that's exciting and the not knowing it's, but it, the, the, the trap is the believing that you do know and that there is lots to know and chasing that knowing. It, because in, in a sense, like if, you, if you're just trying to be knowledgeable all the time, you're chasing, um, you know, you're chasing the infinite in the finite of your own life. And you're, you're always going to come up against the fact there's more, there's more and it will change and there's more. Um, but I think, yeah, at the moment, the, the kind of status of information is really strange um, in, in our society, I guess. Hmm. God, that was um, ridiculous. No, 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 no. That's um, um, every time I pause, it's me looking at my notes, trying to decipher them. So, <laughs> um, I'm also trying to ask sort of more broad strokes questions here, really, because Rebels isn't published, because um, listeners yeah. won't be able to, um, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. themselves. No, I thought I thought it would be a really good way of um, getting into life, capital L. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, one line in particular, though, or one quote, which is, the crisis of asking, is this truly worth the paper? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Is that something that you grapple with a lot in your work? Is it um, it sort of an art? 
every moment. <laughs> no, um, that that came when um, it, that was really funny because I was writing that during lockdown. And I'd kind of just written this long spiel, this scree of, of what I thought was a book. And then just having a moment that I do describe in all particles and waves as well, something I kind of think of as the inverse epiphany, when everything, <laughs> sort of all the meaning dropped out of everything. And suddenly you're like, what, what, what? All these kind of three-dimensional, substantial kind of bodies of thought are suddenly revealed to be kind of, flat pack nightmares of superficiality and ridiculous scratchings on the infinite meaninglessness of it all and um it's nice to hear I, that yeah, someone yeah, that with a phd has this experience too as a as a lowly <laughs> as a lowly ba <laughs> no no there's 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 no hierarchy this is i've just tunneled deeper into my ridiculousness i suppose but um i think that yeah that 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 is such a huge thing, you know, uh, like, especially if you're going to try and write poetry for the majority of your life, if you want to keep doing that. I mean, it is ridiculous. And I think there's 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 power in recognizing that, uh, laughing at it uh, in a way that doesn't remove the barb of it. It's still terrifying, you know, yeah. but, but in a way, maybe it's truthful because it, it kind of also, you know, living is ridiculous and life is ridiculous and so there's there's a kind of honesty in poetry allowing us to externalize that in some way and um i i yeah i think a lot of the time it cracks me up because you you think about the way that books are often talked about as essential and necessary and poor in these kind of things and I, i'm often all the time thinking this is so unnecessary <laughs> um, and and I have a joy in that as well like I think there's something beautiful about that that you can think of in political terms as well it's 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 a kind of sanctuary against um, being instrumentalized being uh, an object of utility or transferable value no it's in and of itself a mess for its own joy or yeah. madness i was i was going to ask you about the second part of the collection of rubbles which i think is extremely messy by design um yeah yeah um and i was going to ask if i guess in similar terms if for you that's a way of resisting commodification with your poetry um i i think it it was a way of i think there was a part of the messiness was also me trying to imagine sitting amongst the, the the literal rubble of all these kind of poetic influences, all these ideas, all these strange kind of bombardments of information that we're in and trying to make anything out of it that wasn't just um, reiteration and recycling. And I don't, and there's no way out of that. So one of the wrestling things there is about this idea of newness and the kind of lie and the thing that is new or radical. And the, um, I think that really interests me that, that that sort of not as simple as like embracing a failure, but in the avant-garde obsession with invention as a new thing, but that is always, always tied to yesterday, to the the, the kind of going back in a, in a kind of modernist sense. But the whole poetry was also massively influenced by uh, a bit of, you know, about uh, my reading of language poetry as well. Um, and trying to kind of bring that into English, uh, more English terrain, which someone like Peter Manson is an incredible, incredible poet who I adore. And, and I think that 
for me the I, I love his book the poems of frank rupture um and that what i love in peter's work as well is there's this incredible forensic precision with the the kind of um uh the the, the kind of ligaments of language and the joints and the strange misplaced vertebrae and the, the fossils of it all uh, and and yet he's able to deal with this in with such humor as well and such kind of uh irreverence as well as intensity i love i love his work so that that was very much in my mind as well when i was writing it mm. i have um i have one more question for you and i think actually i've like done a pretty good job with the number of questions and um <laughs> my last question is just um it's something that we've spoken about in person a bit um but and it's totally a more personal question so it's, Fine if you don't want to give an answer. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the um, difficulty of being a poet just outside of London in Newcastle, quite away from London. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, th that is very true. Well, so I think every poet who is not in in London will have like different experiences of their own local scene, if you want to call it that. And I've never really felt particularly uh, embedded in, in any scene ever really. And so in a way, my biggest connection in London is, is really Steve Fowler and Steve Fowler's events um, and getting to meet poets through him. Um, and also just, I suppose, like I love going to London for, uh cinema for films and stuff like that um I, I don't know i i think newcastle's i love newcastle i suppose also it's it's very affordable it's more affordable and also just really yes um, going to london for readings that is very true but i i don't i guess i haven't done it that much um recently um, oh, yeah. But it is a very interesting question in terms of like, I guess, events and presses and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I suppose I, I, I recently just haven't given it as much thought. I think maybe the, the lockdown has kind of allowed us to all sort of bed down in our own insularities and in various forms and and also opened up so many channels like people are putting things online all the time. And I'm not a massive, you know, like I'm really not a big um zoom or uh technological um fan but at the same time it is incredibly enabling and I, I know that so many people have really really myself included benefited from that you know being able to see certain readings it doesn't have the same vibe a lot of the time but it's incredibly important for accessibility for some of those things to be for some of those channels to be kept as open as sometimes they have been which is great i think yeah, it's um, allowing us to have and record this discussion for one thing well, exactly. And, you know, that's amazing. And it's really nice to see you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> which, which, which will not will not be conveyed via the medium of audio, but uh, for all those listeners out there, Andrew's looking absolutely wondrous and it is a joy to behold your fine visage. <laughs> <laughs> too kind, David. Um, on, that, on that lovely, lovely note, um, we'll end it here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Interpreter's House podcast. You can find the Interpreter's House online at theinterpretershouse.org. You can also give us a follow on Twitter at theinterpreter6. Please subscribe for future episodes. My thanks again for listening, and my thanks to David Spittle for a wonderful interview. <laughs>